0: Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to worship here at Well, that's a motorcycle, not the microphone. <laughs> Welcome to worship here at Springfield Church of the Brethren. It is Sunday, October 10th. We're so glad to have you all here in worship today. Our scripture comes from Matthew 13, 1 through 9 and 18 through 23. This is how Eugene Peterson put it in his uh, transliteration, the message At about that same time, Jesus left the house and sat on the beach. In no time at all, a crowd gathered along the shoreline, forcing him to get into a boat. Using the boat as a pulpit, he addressed the congregation, telling stories. What do you make of this? A farmer planted seed. As he scattered the seed, some fell on the road, and the birds ate it. Some fell on the gravel. It sprouted quickly, but it did not put down roots. So when the sun came up, it withered just as quickly. Some fell in the weeds as it came up. It was strangled by the weeds, and some fell on good earth and produced a harvest beyond wildest dreams. Are you listening to this? Are you really listening? Later he said to the disciples, Study this story of the farmer planting seed. When anyone hears the news of the kingdom, it doesn't take to it or take it in. It remains on the surface. So the evil one comes along and plucks it right out of the person's heart. This is the seed the farmer scatters on the road. The seed cast in the gravel. This is a person who hears and instantly responds with enthusiasm but there is no character, and so when the emotions wear off and some difficulty arises, there is nothing to show for it. The seed cast in the weeds is the person who hears the kingdom news, but weeds of worry and illusions about getting more and wanting everything under the sun strangle what was heard, and nothing comes of it. And the seed cast upon the good earth is the person who hears and takes the news and produces a harvest beyond wildest imaginations. Blessed is the word. Amen. (sighs) Temptation forever haunts our pathways. It's always there. There's always something we want. Want to do. Want to have and there is temptation to just reach out and take it. For instance, for me, there is always a temptation to break into songs from my childhood. I'm always just one whim away, a whim away, a whim away. In the jungle, no, no! (laughs) All joking aside... It is something we deal with. It's innately human that we deal with temptations. It's not always, though, about what we just need at that moment. I mean, for instance, I am not currently hungry. But if you brought me a nice, juicy burger with a little pink inside, cheese, mayo, lettuce, tomato, grilled onions, slow-cooked grilled onions, I will eat it. I don't need it, but I will eat it. (laughs) Temptation is often about those things in ourselves that we want more of, even if we don't need it. Some more pleasure, some feeling fulfilled, not being afraid, feeling empowered. It's basic. It's one of the reasons I really think the Gospels that three out of the four tell us that Jesus was tempted. Because what better way to know that Jesus, who is fully God, is also fully human than to know that he dealt with the same problems we do. So, he was tempted. And we know that those temptations must not have only been for his most basic needs, but for something deeper inside as well. Just as we are always tempted by something deeper inside, even if it comes out a different way. So yes, 40 days of fasting. You know, that means maybe having a little food before sunrise, and maybe only water at most during the day, and then not eating until the sun goes down. You are probably pretty hungry. And if you could turn a stone into a nice fresh piece of bread still a little warm in the center with nice hard crusty outside that when you push into it you hear all the cracks and crumbles of good crust that's a temptation because of hunger but it must mean more for Jesus he must be tempted I feel like my mic is really low today maybe not He must be tempted for another reason as well, because after all, he came here to save all of us. So he must have temptations beyond the basic, and I mean, who wouldn't want to solve world hunger? You know, if he can just go, hey, stone, your bread, and everyone was fed, that's a great temptation to just fix all the problems. well uh, Maslow has his basic you know his pyramid of like basic fundamental needs of human of humans and the base of that is our body's needs that we cannot worry about all the other fulfillment that we need until we have food water safe shelter you know enough sleep we need those first and then you can worry about all the other things Jesus could fix that like this The same goes for the other ones. I mean, after all, think about him stepping off at the highest point of the temple in Jerusalem and then being carried gently by the angels down to the bottom. Imagine all the temple authorities seeing him do that. He has just now been recognized as, if not the Son of God, the Incarnation. At the very least, he'd be recognized as a prophet, God's chosen prophet and he can bring Judaism into a new golden age when they follow the law given by Moses to the letter to fulfill it and get rid of all the useless things that had been added to it over time or imagine if he had bowed down to the tempter on the mountaintop and now he had been given the right to rule all the kingdoms of the land Why do we have to wait for the kingdom of heaven to come when he can just go, fixed, by decree, here are the new laws. Now we have achieved the kingdom of God. It used to really annoy me as a teenager that he didn't do that. I mean, after all, we live in a world that has pain and suffering where humanity can't seem to understand and follow the way of the kingdom of God and instead, we get it all confused with the kingdom of us. Now, as I grew up, I realized a couple things about the story. that made me less annoyed at Jesus. You're allowed to be annoyed at Jesus. It's okay to say. First off, it was a temptation. There was no guarantee that Jesus would have actually received all the benefits if he had just Bowed down or taken the step or turned the bread, I mean, turned the rock into bread. It was a test to make sure that this being who has the full power of God within him, but also deals with all the needs and wants of a human, that he could handle the power the way God wanted him to. Secondly, we humans do not like to be told what to do. We don't like somebody upstairs saying, this is how I decree it. We just don't like it. Instead, when change happens, good change, change that sticks through history, that's efficient, effective, and deep, that change doesn't start with a leader on top saying, this is the way it goes now, folks. Rather, it starts with many individuals coming together around a new idea and growing it from there. Now, this is how Jesus does it. After all, he doesn't go out and go to the kings and say, I am the son of God and I have a message for you. This is how you should rule your kingdom. Instead, he goes to the regular everyday Joes and Janes and says, Here's how you should live your life. Come follow me. And he builds around him a small group. Yes, I mean, each of the Gospels disagree what that small group looks like exactly, which is fine because the Gospels reflect each person's story. Some saw, you know, Jesus had just the 12. Sometimes it was a great big group with kind of a 12 inner circle. And sometimes it was a great big group with 12 that were kind of like the captains. Regardless, this small group, after Jesus had been executed, resurrected, and ascended, received the Holy Spirit and began to grow the garden that Jesus had started. Now, they made the mistake that Jesus did not make. And they stayed in one place and created a huge gathering around themselves. Which happened in Jerusalem, and then they all got kicked out of Jerusalem because of it. And so, as they went out and spread out, it was like a seed. The seed I can think of best is a dandelion, and I know we have a lot of mixed feelings in this church about what dandelions are, whether they are flowers or weeds. But, like dandelion seeds, they spread throughout the kingdoms around them. And wherever they fell, they began to grow new little groups of flowers around themselves. And then those seeds spread out, and more little patches of flowers grew here and there. And before you knew it, someone lifted up their head and looked around at the Roman Empire and realized it was a field of flowers now. Christianity had grown quietly by small groups, slowly spreading out and bringing more in. This is what Gladys Muir recognized about the gospel. Now, Gladys comes at a very special time in our history. If you want to think about it, a lot of stories, they're they're called like arcs, A-R-C. And an arc means you begin at one place, you go through changes, and you end back at the same level, though changed. At the very beginning, we had Alexander Mack and the other seven, and they are in the world, but they don't like it. And so they change. They separate themselves off. They form this new church, and they pull off of it. But as they are pulling off of it, problems happen. The world doesn't like it. And so we came across people like Christoph Sauer, Jr., and people like John Klein and Peter Becker, and there's a lot of them. These were men and women who, because they separated from the world, were punished by the world, who had lost things. But they continued to pull away. And then we entered a point where we were now far away, but we started to look inwards. Because though we had pulled away, we weren't that far away from the world. We carried with it some of the prejudices, some of the culture, from the world, and it was, well, weeds in our garden. And so we had people like Samuel Wire, Maddie Dolby, Julia Gilbert, Sarah Major, those who looked into the garden and said, we got to get rid of these problems so that our flowers can actually thrive. Because while some of it is working, some of it's being choked out. We went through a lot of schisms. Our garden became divided by more fences and walls, but we continued to grow. We continued to do a little better. And then we reached Gladys. And Gladys, I would consider her at the apex of our arc, right up here, right at the top, where we have reached one extreme and we start to go back down the other side. Gladys recognized, that we had built our walls too thick and too high. Now her story actually starts in 1895, just as the century is about to turn. She was the daughter of a musician, a professor of music at McPherson College. It's still there, it's in McPherson, Kansas. It's the Church of the Brethren College, Bulldogs, I think. She grew up Church of the Brethren, this daughter of a Church of the Brethren family at a Church of the Brethren college. She graduated in uh, 1915. Put that in context, she is 20 years old and she graduates with her bachelor's. Now, this is in a time where the education system isn't nearly as stiff as we have it today. There's a lot more flexibility. What does amaze me is by 1916, the next year, She is teaching classes at Laverne College in Laverne, California, which is now Laverne University, or University of Laverne, I can't remember. Also Church of the Brethren, where she's teaching Latin and Spanish. She's got to be one bright cookie to be 21 and teaching people who are almost her same age or older. She taught there for about three years when she picked up a new subject, history. I guess that's a logical conclusion if you're in Latin. I mean Latin is a dead language after all. So you got to learn a little bit about history. But she did something unusual. By a show of hands, when you think of your history classes from back in your school days, how many of you would think it is a class where I go in and I learn some dates and some people and what they did on such dates? Does that sound like history class? More or less? Okay. Gladys hated that. It didn't make any sense to her. After all, history is a story told down through specific lines. I mean, history is not a fairy tale. It's not like a clear, oh, this happened and this happened and this happened. No, there are context around it. There are people who think different things about different parts of history. There are people who had their stories that were never told, who ended up changing how things went. History is complex and muddy and dirty. It takes time, it takes research to really understand why something happened a certain way. You know, the study of history, the idea of it is that we don't make the same dumb mistake twice, but we're humans and we make the same dumb mistakes many more than twice. Thrice, what's four times? Twice? I don't know. But we make it again and again. She wanted to stop that. She wanted her students to really study history. And so she built a class that was designed around them going out, studying themselves, and coming back in and arguing with one another to really delve into the meat of the situation. I don't know about you, that just sounds like a good history class to me far more interesting than memorization, this class became insanely popular on the campus. And before long, her class was not only full of people who had to take it, but it was full of people who wanted to take it, those who weren't required. And she had to add extra classes. It was really popular. As she was doing this, She was confronted with the idea of examining her own faith history. After all, the Church of the Brethren has a history that is more complex than just a simple timeline. It has different groups splitting and joining, different voices speaking up, different voices ignored. And so she went back and examined. And she came to a conclusion We had built the wall around our garden too high. And that's not what Jesus did. Jesus did not take 12 disciples, or 70 disciples, whichever it may be, and build them a garden for them to live in and hide in for the rest of their lives. No. He scattered them out into the world to deliver the message like wind-blowing dandelion seeds all over the place. I'm sorry, that might have made some of you cringe. But that's what he did. And she realized that's got to be the way we should approach as, as Church of the Brethren. Because after all, this whole time, we're separating, we're separating, we're pulling away, we're working on ourselves, we're working on ourselves. Eventually, you have to open the gate. And you've got to take some of those seeds and spread them out in the world. And so she did. She started speaking about the brethren's story, about peace, about partnership, about working together and working towards pure ethics and morals. Before she knew it, she was drawn into World War I as a consultant, as a speaker, as a teacher. She traveled around the world speaking to presidents, ambassadors, ministers, anyone who would listen. Talking about peace. Talking about sustaining peace in the long run. She was invited then to Manchester College. I mean, this is three, three brethren colleges in a row here. She was invited to Manchester College to begin their first peace studies program, which still exists today, and as far as I'm aware, was the first peace studies program in the world, at the very least in the U.S. For the next 11 years, she followed Jesus' example. She brought around her a community that she taught. She taught them to think critically. She taught them to think about how the seeds would grow. She taught them that they would go out and they would fail. Because sometimes when you spread seeds, they fall on the hard ground, they fall in the weeds, they fall on the gravel, and they do not sprout. But it was worth it because some of those seeds would fall in verdant places where they would grow and produce more seeds. She spoke to the Church of the Brethren and said, we need to stop separating ourselves. We have worked so hard to stay away from the world because it was corrupting for us. And it still is. But just because we pull away does not mean we shouldn't be here to live what Christ called us to, which was to change the world. And you can't change the world if your garden's gate is always closed. she lived until 1967 she actually retired from her position at manchester but continued to teach and preach and go about giving lectures in many ways if it not for her the church of the brethren wouldn't be who they are today we wouldn't be focused on preaching peace in the halls of power we wouldn't have people like the washington office who go around talking to our senators and our representatives and our generals and whatnot, saying there is another way. There's an option that Jesus called us to. So, for us, we need to remember the gate is open. The only reason the gate is ever closed is because we choose to close it. But Jesus doesn't call us to close the gate. Jesus calls us to spread the seeds. And Jesus doesn't say, go find the perfect person and give them the seed. Jesus says, spread the seeds wherever you walk. It doesn't matter if you are in the worst place possible, New Jersey, or or you're here in Northeast Ohio. Which I guess I'll have to call paradise now that I live here. Uh, <laughs> actually, I believe almost heaven is West Virginia. Huh. I break it out in the song again. <laughs> it's only a whim away. <laughs> but spread the seed, whoever you meet, wherever you go. Show Christ's way by your actions by your words, by the way you live your life. Gladys is quote today. We also know that God is not limited to the alternatives we see, and that he whose travails brought the earth out of chaos has also the power to deliver us. He has delivered us, let us spread those seeds to bring our neighbors, our world out of the chaos too. Amen. I won't be spreading this out in here as we have no birds to clean up after me. But you are all flowers of God, children of God, people brought to fruition in God. And flowers produce seeds. That is their purpose, to spread the joy of God out. So, as you go out today, spread those seeds freely to bring about a garden, a garden of God. Isn't that what Eden is? Bring about paradise again. Amen.